0: on Tommy. I think I'm going to get a Welcome podcast. back to Round Guy the Podcast. As we continue our coverage of Tommy Bowen, we're with Michael Drum. Well, we, we're up to about 1968. Uh, Tommy's had an exciting first 30 days uh, opening for Howlin' Wolf, uh, playing with Jimi Hendrix. Uh, things are really starting to take off. Uh, t- take it from there, Michael. So as I said, that he had uh, the family dog, which was really huge coincidence that when Tommy arrived in Denver that that club had just opened and Barry Fay had partnered with Chet Helms who was the second most legendary music impresario in San Francisco history next to Bill Graham and that Chet had helped steer all these amazing groups to the Denver family dog and that as soon as American Standard existed, which took one time of Tommy playing Purple Haze, they were brought to Barry's attention immediately, and he immediately embraced them as a as an opening act and as a band that could back up some of the, like a Howlin' Wolf who wasn't touring with the band because he wanted to pocket all the money, so they would get a local group to, you know, to do it almost for free. And the Tommy had blown his mind completely. But by July, the club closed, and that that amazing opportunity was over. And Tommy had gotten wind about an opportunity to play with Lonnie Mack back in the Cincinnati area. And so he went back there, and that only lasted a short period of time. But while he was there, he met this amazing keyboard player and saxophonist and flute player, John Ferris, who was kind of this bohemian. Jazz musician, brilliant guy. So they then immediately glommed onto each other, and they came back to Denver, and in short order got word, uh, got up to Boulder, and uh, got hooked up with uh, Candy and David Givens. Candy being a singer who's been compared to in a way to Janis Joplin, but she actually had her own style. But back then, a woman who was a strong singer usually got compared to Janis Joplin. And David was a very talented guitarist and bass player. And immediately people, the thing about Tommy is everybody got hip to him instantly. (laughs) It was just like, light a match and there you go. And so it only took a a short period of time. Well, actually, Kenny and David had been in a group up in Aspen. And, and they played on a bill with American Standard. That's how they first saw Tommy. And they were blown away. But Tommy was distracted and they didn't really connect personally. But then once he came back and was up in Boulder, they got hooked up again with them because they were like wanting to form a new group. And they instantly put Zephyr together, which was like a blues, rock, jazz, psychedelic, amazing group. And, um, and I first saw that's where I first saw Tommy it was uh, October 1969 when they played on the University of Colorado campus and it just blew my mind. So anyway, Barry Fay, who already knew Tommy, some of these other people up in Boulder who were into holding concerts and booking concerts because there was this whole scene around wanting to book concerts, and so Barry was immediately now becoming the main concert promoter, and he was very competitive. He didn't want any competition. He was like a little bit mafia-like in how he approached things. And Zephyr needed a manager because they were clueless. And Barry didn't know anything about managing, but he did have contacts in the booking and and, uh, promotion area. And then he could network. He was good at networking, and he was able to help immediately plug them into some national gigs, including all the first ones was at Chet Helms' Avalon out in San Francisco. So in short order, they wound up getting a record deal, and they did the first Zephyr album. But they also then continued to get booked on various festivals, because they were starting to be these festivals, before, like leading up to Woodstock and whatnot, and, that whole 1969 the, the year of the festival right and Woodstock was just the biggest of them but there were lots of them and so Zephyr was getting booked onto these kinds of festivals and also being an opening act and so Led Zeppelin um, first American gig was in Denver in 1968 on a bill that Barry Fay had promoted it was Vanilla Fudge and Spirit and they stuck Led Zeppelin on so well, anyway, Zephyr wound up getting booked and Led Zeppelin, of course, caught fire you know, immediately. And they got booked to open Led Zeppelin. Well, Jimmy Page, of course, famously was a great producer and he had been in the London scene as a session guitar player for years and been in the Yardbirds. And he really is the person who put Led Zeppelin together. It was his project. And he produced all their albums, right? Robert Plant was kind of like a partner, wrote lyrics, but it was really Jimmy's band in many ways. He was the Svengali. So this night comes where Zephyr's opening for Led Zeppelin, and Jimmy Page saw Tommy. And this is also another piece of narrative that's not known and he went wild like he shit in his pants and he came bursting into their dressing room where's that guitar player where's that guitar player he then got personally involved with his effort to try to help them because their first album they weren't satisfied with how it got produced and the producer was somebody who had been an engineer but he really hadn't been a producer Bill Halverson and they weren't really happy with it. So they were like, they, they wanted to do something. They didn't want to do that same process, but they had, none of them had ever recorded an album before. So Jimmy Page all of a sudden was like, you guys have to work with Eddie Kramer at Electric Lady Studios in New York, Jimmy is producer, and the chief engineer at Electric Lady. This is what you guys have to do. And so Jimmy hooks him up with Eddie, and Eddie's like, I can get you a deal with Warner Brothers. And their second album, going back to Colorado, was on Warner Brothers. And so Jimmy Page made that happen. He, he's the one who right, said, call, do this. He personally got involved. And again, you can Google this to the cows in home. It's not out there. This is not out there. I just spoke to David Gibbons for five hours a week ago, who was there. He was in Zephyr. And he told me this story. And so they went with it. And that album was quite a bit more focused and together and dialed in. But Eddie Kramer at that point was distracted a bit. He was having a love affair with Carly Simon. And so he was all kind of caught up in that. And part of being a producer is to really be engaged directly with the band, to be there a lot, to be sharing, going back and forth. And then right in the middle of doing the album, he said, hey, Monday, Jimmy's going to fly in from London to jam with you guys. And the assumption is that they were going to roll tape. Jimmy died on Saturday. And this, this is a true story. And they were going to roll tape. Jimmy owned the studio. And he was producing the Zephyr album. He was Jimmy's engineer producer. And if that had occurred, the point is that Jimmy had started getting into heroin. Um, and the Denver Pop Festival, which I know you brought up yesterday. It was a two months before Woodstock in Denver. Barry Fay put on a festival, similar kind of format, three days, a bunch of different bands. And Jimmy was on that bill. And evidently by then, he had got engaged with heroin. And that was the last show that Jimi Hendrix Experience ever did. And Mitch Mitchell, and especially Noel Redding, was starting to feel like I'm important too, and, and they were fighting all the time. And so, and then Jimmy, from reports, was starting to you know have a heroin uh, engagement that was then shifting how he was. And that that then all led up to that weekend where he never made it to New York. And if that had happened. But the counterpoint to that story was that they had to get out of their deal with ABC Records. Their first album was on this ABC probe, which is part of ABC, which was a pretty big label. And so they, Candy and David, had a meeting with Jay Lasker, who was the legendary president of ABC. And Jay was like, you know what, I got a producer I want you to work with. And I, you know, I realized that you're not happy with how the first album went. I've got somebody here I want you to work with. And this other person was sitting there in the office. And Candy and David were like, no, you know what? No. Jimmy Page has hooked us up with Eddie Kramer and, and we can get a deal with Warner Brothers. We want out of our deal. And Jay wasn't happy. I don't know what, what they had to do to deal and settle that. But the producer that was there was the mastermind of a major hit rock album that had just come out and gone to the top of the charts. James Gang Rides Again, Bill Simzik, who of course wound up producing all of Joe Walsh's breakthrough solo albums, Hotel California by the Eagles. And while Eddie Kramer had a pretty good career, Bill showed he knew how to work with an idiosyncratic, unique rock artist. And David Gibbons, the other night in my talking to him, said he made a mistake. <laughs> well, like David, the what-ifs are piled up to the ceiling there. So that's, that's also not in the narrative. Who became one of the most successful rock producers of the 70s was teed up to produce his effort. And I can look at that myself and go, yeah, that was a mistake. Like, you know, what do you know? Jimmy Page is the one going, you gotta do this. What are you gonna do? You know, I'm gonna follow that. So then, anyways, that, were, that album came out and it didn't quite get the momentum going everybody was hoping for. And Tommy at that point was starting to feel like he had a different, he wanted to pursue some other things. But Cammie and David decided they had, they had switched to Bobby Berge as the drummer, who was Tommy's friend from Sioux Falls. And they decided they wanted to go back to the original Zephyr drummer, Robbie Chamberlain. And they set up a power play to get that to happen, which David now looks back at and goes, that was a mistake also. And Tommy then quit he quit and this is like the late spring of 1971. And by then Zephyr was putting on just these mesmerizing concerts. But because this all went down that way, he quit. And that summer, *Intermounting Flame* on the New Orchestra came out. The sub story of all this is that Tommy had spent time in and around Zephyr. In New York City, he had met on some of those festivals. The group Dreams, which was kind of a more artistic Chicago, had a drummer, Billy Cobb, who wound up being in the Mavish New Orchestra, who ended the Spectrum album with Tommy. So Tommy, because he was in Zephyr, was starting to be noticed by really significant musicians. And he wound up having an entree to go to New York and to meet some of these jazz musicians, all of whom were completely blown away by him instantly. And he couldn't read music. And all these jazz guys are all reading charts. And he would be embraced, even though he wasn't formally trained. So, Mavishno Orchestra had Jan Hammer was in it, who he had already... He and Billy Tom and Jan Hammer and Jeremy Stein had done a demo for a couple of songs at Electric's Lady studios before the Mahavishnu Orchestra album came out, which, of course, revolutionized electric guitar in a complex, time-signature-changed out there. most amazing jazz fusion album ever was Intermountain and Flame, and that's so that came out right at the time Tommy was leaving Zephyr. And so he formed his first solo band, and he called it Energy, which was named after an album Jeremy Steig had done with Jan Hammer. And then they did a song that Jan Hammer wrote called Downstretch, which if you listen to that, it's on you know, YouTube, we wound up putting that out on the archives. Sounds like the Mahavishnu Orchestra. So the first iteration of energy didn't have a singer. And of course, the Mahavishnu Orchestra didn't have their all instrumental. So Tommy initially was basically trying to do the Mahavishnu Orchestra. But where McLaughlin had high-up major league management based out of New York and had a jazz pedigree and could get booked, Tommy was in Boulder. He didn't have any of that. And he's trying. To, they're trying to get gigs in beer clubs, and so it didn't go over very well. And um, and Tommy wound up being the booking agent for Energy, and he would then try to find gigs everywhere, do whatever he could, and and, and then Energy would do the same thing. They would back up. Blues Legends. They backed up Big Man Thornton. They backed up Chuck Berry. And then there was a stadium show at Folsom Stadium in Boulder had it It's a Beautiful Day, Poco, and uh, Albert Lee. I mean, Albert King. Albert King. And Albert had his own keyboard player, but then the energy backed him up. And people who were at that show, Stanley Sheldon was the bass player, Tommy and Albert stood toe-to-toe, trading licks, and after the show, Albert went, you got me. So, again, uh, Tommy just continued to just blow everybody's mind, but energy just was sucking wind they couldn't make any money they couldn't get any momentum they did a number of demos one of which had jeff cook's song dreamer on it which is on the teaser album but on the demo jeff was singing and when i listen to that song today it sounds like journey five years later once they got steve perry the way they shifted gears and became a radio friendly rock band so dreamer sounds like in 1972 and Tommy's playing the most perfectly appropriate, amazing solo, more of a pop rock format. But the whole point was they couldn't get a record deal, and Barry Say was their manager, and in retrospect, they you know, were stuck in Colorado, and Barry was the only person who had any contacts. So at that point, they're broke. Joe Walsh, meanwhile, had moved to Boulder, being produced by Bill Simczyk, and he and Tommy immediately became friends and they, Tommy wound up opening for some local barnstorm shows to some clubs and James Gang had replaced Joe with Dominic Troiano and Roy Kent, and they did an album called Straight Shooter which was a complete stiff as it used to say back in the day it went straight in with the cutout pins <laughs> And Joe, he had left the James game because the James game was basically owned by Jim Fox, the drummer. And that's why it was called the James game. So, you know, Joe's talking to Jim. And Jim's going, yeah, the album's stiff. Dominic doesn't really like playing live. And, uh, and, and Joe goes, I got somebody for you. Tommy Boland. Joe Walsh. Arranged for Tommy to audition. Of course, it's not an audition. It's just, you're in. And they then uh, did James Gang Bang. And Tommy wrote the music to 90% of the songs on the record. Jeff Cook wrote lyrics to a bunch of them. He already had a lot of these songs already, ready to go. He had a backlog of songs. And all of a sudden, he was in a straight-ahead rock band, rock format, trying to push the buttons of mainstream rock music. It filtered through kind of the way the James Gang approached their music, which was very straightforward. And a lot of people who are into Tommy feel that that's one of the great albums, James Gang Bang. And it was the first time Tommy was teed up as the star rock guitar player in a band that in theory could get airplay. But right at the time that happened, he got a call from Billy Cobham who had quit the Mahavish New Orchestra because the music and the whole thing was so intense, he had to take a sabbatical. (laughs) But he got a deal with Atlantic Records to do a solo album. And of the songs he wanted to have just a quartet and of course he had jan hammer who had been with him in the Mavish new orchestra who had already done a demo with tommy billy and jan and tommy and jeremy spag had already done a demo and and then billy had crossed paths with leland sklar who had also been in a band that saw tommy back in the day, but Leland was then in the the section which was a rock fusion band and they went on tour with the Mahavishnu Orchestra so the section opened for the Mahavishnu Orchestra and there was Leland marveling at the most amazing band possible he did videos last year about all this And, and so Billy asks Leland to be the bass player and asked Tommy to be the guitar player. And Leland had already met Tommy. But when Tommy walked in the studio on the Monday morning, Leland had no idea who the guitar player was going to be. My old buddy, Tommy! And so they did four songs. Billy really had charts. He had all the music written out. Tommy couldn't read music. So Jan Hammer spent half a day just running through the compositions of Tommy. And Billy last year did a podcast with Nara to Michael Walden where he stops him in the middle of the interview and says, I need to talk about Spectrum. My inspiration was a kid named Boland. So all these years later, Billy Tom is still publicly going, He blew my mind. And Billy's one of the most sophisticated musicians in contemporary music history. And that he did that last year. And tell me, I've got that on the archives, Facebook page. That Billy Cobb was witnessing about the brilliance of Tommy all these years later. Because Tommy was a genius. He was a rare genius. This kid from Sioux City. Blue collars comes no advanced education, almost, didn't, almost took no music lessons at all. He's now got the top jazz musicians in the world going, he's hit. But by this point, Tommy's with Barry Faye as a manager. Barry is a gambling addict. And Barry wants cash flow. He wants, and, so, and Tommy wanted to be Elvis. but. So, As with Sioux City, Tommy was going to focus more on trying to do something that had a rock basis, but he started developing the teaser album, and what he did with the teaser album was to merge it all together. He had straight-ahead rock songs on it, and he had some incredible jazz rock fusion instrumental tracks on there, and anybody with a good ear. Which is a lot of people who hear that album are just continue to be just blown away by it, and guess who it sounded like? Nobody else you can't listen to the, any of his music that he did himself. He never sounded derivative. he never sounded like he was copying somebody else, yet he put his own complete stamp on the arrangements on the production style when it came to his solo albums. he handpicked all the musicians to be on him. And they would famously not have to rehearse very much. He knew what he wanted. And he was so intuitive that they could just nail it. So in doing all those albums, Zephyr albums, the two James Gang albums, and then, of course, he got into Deep Purple. I think um, that's the next chapter of him Trying to become famous. You know, this whole thing is how do you kind of skip ahead? And Barry Fay wasn't really the right manager. And so he got bored being in the James Gang and um, he wound up quitting. He wanted to focus more on developing a teaser. So he moved from Boulder to Los Angeles and started developing demos for teaser. And then got to where he was ready to start doing proper recording of it. But by then, you know, there just wasn't any money. He wasn't making any money. And, and there, was, there was an artist development fund that Barry had got some other people to invest in. He wasn't spending his money that they had. But it was tough. You know, it was uh, kind of like when he joined the James League. He was you know, low on money so that's when Richie Blackmore told B-Purple to go fuck themselves because he didn't like the way that Glenn Hughes and his being added liked doing soul and funk-oriented music. Richie was, came from more of a classical side and he didn't like the idea of black-inspired music. And so he, he wound up really getting pissed off. And then I think... My assumption is that Deep Purple may have also had an ownership structure where G- which he wasn't really one of the owners. That's just an assumption I have. So that he quit, kind of like the way Joe Walsh quit, James Gang, and then he formed Rainbow, which was going to be finally his band rather than being in the kind of group structure that Deep Purple was. And meanwhile, they had become the third largest touring band in the world. And they had all these offers, huge money, and Richie just fucking quit. And so they're going, what the fuck are we going to do? The entire band had moved to Los Angeles. Deep Purple at that point was based in L.A. Well so was Tommy. We've was got was about a minute famous- and a half left. The story was famously that Tommy, Coverdale had heard Spectrum. They invited Tommy to come, and within 30 seconds, as in all these other situations. Tommy was in deep purple. And then that kind of sets up what would be the last chapter right there. Well, we've been talking with, uh, with the documentarian Tommy Bowen, Michael Drum. Uh, He's just been regaling us with amazing stories. Uh, He's taken us through uh, the Spectrum album at this uh, and uh, the James gang. And now, We've gotten to the deep purple era. So thank you so much, uh, Michael, for being on today. My pleasure. I love talking about time, and, uh, if you couldn't tell. And uh, I'm a pretty good storyteller, so I appreciate the opportunity. For, you know, work with you guys on this, and to get this story out there through your podcast series. I appreciate it. Yes, uh, just letting a little music play here at the end. Teaser is my favorite song. Thanks for listening, everybody.